Monument in Chicago, Illinois, with your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes. We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural economic development, i.e. tourism. And we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. Today's show is partially underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 551, and Hughes-Peterson Publishing, Chicago, Illinois. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. tradition that we are establishing, let's talk about the Pullman National Monument. We have established this component of the show because the Pullman National Monument is still very new, and we are still in the process of branding and identifying ourselves. For us, that's very important because if we don't brand and identify ourselves, others will do so, and that's always a problem. Case in point, people in general and certain media outlets included still write about and refer to the Pullman National Monument as one building in Pullman, and that is the clock tower as the Pullman National Monument, and that is inaccurate. Unintentionally or not, doing so is divisive. According to the United States Department of Interior, And according to the proclamation established by President Barack Obama on February the 19th, 2015, the historic Pullman District in Chicago, Illinois, is the Pullman National Monument. Unlike other national monuments, the Pullman National Monument is not just one building. It is 
at the Matic district. Within that district, there are several tourist sites, lots of great things to see. And so that is important for people to understand that. As a, as a matter of fact, people in the area still, because of what they read, don't understand that the Pullman National Monument is at the Matic District and not just one building. We have in the Pullman Messenger a map that would be great for people to get and see for yourselves. It identifies, I think there are seven sites within the monument uh, that will better help you understand and interpret the Pullman National Monument. So a little commercial, go to PullmanMessenger.com and you can purchase an annual subscription for $12 included in that magazine is a map of the Pullman National Monument. And there you will see all of the wonderful sites that are there for people to visit when they come. And we are the Pullman National Monument, a part of the National Park District's uh, site. We are what is known as a partner site. The National Park Service owns a building in the park, in the Pullman National Monument. They are perceived as the authority in the Pullman National Monument under the National Park Service. But there are partner sites uh, in the National Monument. Uh, there, of course, is the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. There is the uh, Hotel Florence. There is the Pullman Clock Tower building. They're still vacillating on what that's going to be called. Some people refer to it as a museum, but it is not. It is more, I think, ultimately, it will be more of an archive, a repository for different things, but it is not a museum. Then there's the Greenstone Church. There are uh, other places. There is the Pullman Visitor Center. That's the gist of the sites where people can go. But, of course, the entire district is the housing stock of the original town of Pullman. And we have wonderful house tours that we offer, a walking house tours that exist in the Pullman National Monument. So I hope that that helps to, to define, if you will, the Pullman National Monument in a way that will be helpful to people who come from all over the world to visit the Pullman National Monument, and they mistakenly, because they have had inaccurate information given to them, think that the Pullman National Monument is one building, and that is the clock tower, and that is inaccurate. So, without further ado, we will uh, take a quick break and come back with our first guest. Support Hughes-Peterson Publishing by visiting thepullmanmessenger.com and purchase an annual subscription. It's just $12 a year. Or purchase an anthology of respect by Dr. Lynn Hughes. 
available on Amazon.com. Welcome to another edition of Around the Museum Table and Spotlight on Culture. Our guest today is Dr. Reginald M. Tiller. He is Deputy Superintendent at the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Park in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Tiller, whose resume is on our webpage, but I just would like to brag a little bit about him. Before joining the Park Service, Dr. Tiller served as assistant director of Tennessee State Parks. His job and experience and his education, including a doctorate in strategic leadership, helped to prepare him for that task. And now he faces a huge task of building two parks from the ground up. And that is not his first time at such a job, such an endeavor, but he is well qualified. Before accepting his current position, he was acting superintendent at Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument in Wilberforce, Ohio, and superintendent of William Howard Taft Historic Site in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yay, that's my hometown. So there I'm going to stop and, and, and say welcome, Dr. Tiller, to our show. We are honored to have you. And we would start by allowing you yourself to introduce yourself and kind of a little bit of background on what you do, your job there in Atlanta, and whatever else you would like to talk about. Well, great. You know, I'm, I'm really uh, happy to be uh, on with you today. Um, I was sort of blown away when you asked me to be a part of this. Um, I always love talking about uh, the National Park Service and uh, especially working in urban communities and talking about the civil rights movement and how it's so relevant today. Um, you know, uh, as a small kid growing up in a, a small town in Aaron, Tennessee, uh, the civil rights movement was on display daily. Um, uh, small towns, uh, small town problems uh, that had uh, worldwide significance because uh, in small towns, sometimes the civil rights battle can uh, still be uh, going on. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, I'm doing now is as deputy superintendent at Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park, uh, Deputy Superintendent, my role is uh, taking care of park operations, ensuring that staff have the resources to deliver the mission to visitors that come from all over the world. And as as I uh, go to the office every day, uh, I, I feel that I'm truly blessed to be able to somewhat walk in the footsteps of Martin Luther King uh, and um, help visitors to understand uh, why he's so significant. Um, 
uh, to the world today, just like uh, the movement that he led, uh, along with others like Reverend Shuttlesworth and uh, and uh, folks from um, all over the South uh, in the cities and the marches, uh, that they understand what that truly means, that freedom um, is, is fought for uh, both nonviolently, which was his message, uh, just like Gandhi, uh, and then the wars that we fight uh, in order to stay free, uh, a free nation. So um, it, it's just an honor to be on your show and to talk about this, these important topics. Well, we're delighted to have you. I know personally that I was very excited about the prospect of your joining us today and uh, the fact that you're with the National Park Service because we we have a little bit in common in that the museum that I founded, which is the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, was or is located in a in the Pullman National Monument in Chicago, Illinois. And we are, shall we say, struggling <laughs> to because we're still newbies and but we don't have the benefit of someone like you who has such an enormous amount of experience in the position that you hold and and the folks in Atlanta are truly, truly blessed to have someone like you because you not only have the experience and the insight, but you have the spirit of collaboration and cooperation and, and unity that it I see outside looking in is a must for such a position, particularly in in those instances like where we are, where there's a new, you're a new development, if you will. I followed uh, somewhat closely uh, the sign, uh, President Obama's signing of the proclamation to establish uh, the the park there and and um, the it, it it's just an enormous enormous undertaking, but but it's two sides. It's an enormous undertaking for someone who is in the leadership role like yourself, but it's also an enormous undertaking and 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 it takes a bit to wrap your head around. From the community side, the community where you are situated, the residents, and 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 a park is not a park, if you will, and so not every place that establishes a national park or a national monument uh, has the wherewithal or the insight to recognize how significant it is for you to come in and embrace the community because you you're literally coming into someone's house if you will and 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 you have to figure out the way the the the, the path that you need to go so that you can collaboratively and collectively work 
harmoniously together for the greater good, which is to make the site the best that it possibly can be. And I am in envy of the folks in Atlanta to have you. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to back up now and let you (laughs) continue your conversation. But I had to say that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the key to new, new parks being established uh, and it's the same as um, well-established national parks. Uh, the community is so critical. Partnerships are so critical to ensure that the park is being a good citizen uh, to the community and understanding its role in the community. Um, you know, there are friends groups that support these nonprofit groups that help support the park. Uh, to get its message out locally and as well as nationally. Uh, those friends group also help the Park Service deliver programs. Uh, they do fundraising. They share in special events. So uh, parks are um, huge um, uh, aspects of communities. Um, you know, you have staff that come from all of the United States that are hired uh, to work in a new city. Some stay for long long periods of time that makes it their home. Some are there for three to five years and they move on to new experiences. Um, I've been fortunate enough to, to have worked uh, on a couple of new parks um, and one back in 2013, which was the Charles Young Buffalo Soldier National Monument in Wilberforce, Ohio. So uh, I worked with that project for approximately 14 months uh, before they hired uh, the permanent superintendent and um, did a variety of different jobs, but I couldn't have done it without the support internally from the National Park Service, as well as the Wilberforce community, the Dayton community, the Xenia community, uh, because we had special events and we needed support, and we didn't have a budget. So I was uh, asking uh, members of the Rotary Club, I was asking members of friends groups that weren't even a part of the park, to provide funding, uh, volunteers, uh, to have events to keep the energy of a new park moving forward. Um, You know, there's a couple of ways that national parks are established. One is through presidential proclamation, and and typically those are mm, national historic sites, uh, national monuments. Um, However, if you're established by Congress, um, you may be like Yellowstone, for instance. Um, when you're established by Congress, uh, a budget is usually established. Uh, presidential proclamation, many times uh, those parks are established in the middle of a fiscal year, and they will not have any funding funding until the next fiscal year. So the National Park Service uh, then provides a uh, acting superintendent uh, at the expense of the National Park Service to go there to engage the community and to work with volunteers um, to get that park off the ground. So, for instance, at um, Freedom Riders National Monument that was established uh, in 2016, uh, I went there for a year and worked with that park, uh, and and the bus station will be the National Monument. Well, the bus station needs to be renovated. Uh, It needs to be prepared for visitors to use. And it's probably going to be a three to five, maybe a little bit longer as funding uh, comes available to uh, make that site um, suitable for, for regular visitation. 
Uh, visitors still come there. They take pictures. They get their passport stamps. Uh, there are some uh, programs that are offered on the weekends occasionally. There are special events that uh, the park engages with the local community like Anniston, uh, uh, City Hall, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, and uh, a variety of other uh, agencies and organizations uh, that are there to try to increase tourism to that area. And so um, uh, when you're an acting superintendent, um, there's no clock. Um, you're, you're up sometimes at 6 in the morning and you're out until 10 meeting with different groups in order to keep that synergy going, uh, to keep that park moving forward. And uh, as funding comes in and you get your first permanent staff person and then your second one, then it, it starts feeling like a park. But um, there's, there's not a template uh, because all parks are different. Um, they're under the NPS um, umbrella, but the story um, is what makes them different. So if you have a civil rights site, uh, you're going to have a lot of emotions around those sites versus, let's say, um, Rocky Mountain National Park. People go there to see the beauty, the mountains. Uh, it's, serenity, it's very serene. And uh, so, you, so you you have different expectations. You can also be emotional in that setting. That you know, I'm here, eleven thousand feet above sea level, and that's emotion. But when you think about the human condition, the activities around the civil rights movement, and the people that have given that have gave their lives so that other people uh, would have a better life, uh, those things uh, bring out a different type of an emotion. You know. Um, I can say firsthand, <clears throat> I know that that's true. It's interesting. My first encounter with that on the visitor side was that we have, uh, over the last couple of years, we've had an increase, a substantial increase in international visitors, uh, specifically from Europe and Asia. And we, our first encounter we had was, was a group of people who came from London. And we were so excited that wanting to know how they found out about us at the museum and, and why they chose to come to our site. What was very interesting and, and, and compelling for me was that they said that they wanted to know, they're curious to know, about African-American history, heritage, and culture, and in particular, they were very interested in civil rights. Well, the Pullman Porters played an integral role in in the role of the modern-day civil rights uh, movement. Most people, it's not common knowledge. It's like families who know about it and share those stories, but they were. And so in our interpretive uh, activity at the Pullman Porter Museum that comes across loud and clear because you, 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 we introduced that to you, the visitor. And so these were people from London. There must have been about 70 of them. And a few of them I saw were visibly shaken uh, by the, the, by the experience. And one uh, gentleman in particular came and began to say to me 
apologized profusely, saying that he was so sorry. And I immediately thought, as a founder, my head went to, oh, God, is this an insurance that you, that that something happened that we're liable for something? And so ultimately we got to the point where he said, no, it was that they, people who were not African-American and from a different place, were not fully aware of the challenges and the experiences that African-Americans had to endure in this country. And the, the, the videos that we showed the, at, at, at the site and the visual, the pictorial uh, uh, images that we have, you get it. You can be black, white, purple, spotted, or dotted. You get it. You cannot come in those doors and leave without getting it, if you will. And so that was really, really emotional for me to see this. This was a man and and he had water. His his eyes were welled up and he was very, very sincere. And so you don't know. You don't know what the, the experience the visitor will have. You just do your job in interpreting at your site. But that was the very first experience that I had with that kind of encounter. And so what you said just hit home for me. Yes, well, you know, I, I have uh, made a few friends uh, from Europe and some other countries, and uh, and it's all been around civil rights. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, in the courtyard at Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park approximately two and a half years ago. And a gentleman walked up to me, and I noticed he had a uh, English German uh, translation book in his hand, and uh, he actually spoke pretty good, pretty good English. And um, he asked me if I was a policeman, and I told him that I was a uh, deputy superintendent. I used to be a, a policeman uh, for him, a national park ranger, and he wanted to trade uh, law enforcement patches with me. And so he wanted a National Park Service patch, and he gave me one of his German police patches. And, you know, I didn't have a patch handy, so, uh, you know, I wrote him a note and told him that I would uh, send it to him. I just needed his address. And so that started a correspondence that is going on to this date. And um, and he comes to the United States. He saves his money because police officers, you know, we – we don't make a lot of money uh, doing that type of job, but he saves his money to come to the United States to learn more about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing to me is that these sites are so powerful that, um, and and I think that when you think about um, the first, um, why well, ask your question? Um, do you know which? Uh, Net, uh, uh, site in the National Park Service was founded for uh, an African American. I do not. Well, it was uh, George Washington Carver National Monument in Diamond, Missouri. And um, th- there are a lot of anecdotal types of stories about why that monument was established. Uh, we know that George Washington Carver was a was a great American. And we knew that he, we know that he was born into slavery. Um, uh, we know his journey to try to get an education. Um, but one of the stories that I've heard 
is that uh, uh, when Harry S. Truman was a senator from Missouri and uh, the war was going on uh, and we had, you know, black soldiers uh, fighting in in the war, uh, the question was uh, uh, the enemy that we were fighting were saying, how can you fight a war for a place or a country that does not respect you, that treats you bad. And so uh, Truman uh, offered up uh, George Washington Carver of an example, as an example of uh, African-American success. Uh, he was educated. Uh, he was a professor. He, he was a researcher. He had uh, wealthy friends, uh, Henry Ford. Uh, uh, presidents um, uh, uh, came to Tuskegee to meet him. Um, he, he spoke before Congress to booze and catcalls and turned them into cheers. And so <clears throat> that's the anecdotal part behind why that monument was established. But then if you fast forward, I mean, that monument was established, you know, way back in the, the 30s, 40s, in that time frame. The interesting thing is, is that now we have Harriet Tubman, and it was founded, what, in, in 2013. So these sites are not established chronologically uh, based on history, um, and I think that's too bad to some degree. Uh, as long as they get established, I, I'm happy and proud. Uh, I just think it's been a long time coming. I think that um, the American public has had uh, a lot of, um, heartache about the civil rights movement in the United States. It's, it's a history that they see as negative, uh, that hasn't, wasn't a part of American history. Uh, it wasn't in my textbooks when I went through elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, however, it is American history. And I think that when people come to, come to grips with that, uh, they go to the sites. And, um, you know, all change happens internally. So when this gentleman that his eyes were welling up that you mentioned, you know, he was going through a transformation. He was accepting that, you know, this was wrong and, you know, we should do everything that we can to be better, uh, better people, better human beings. And I think that that's the biggest and best message to date that the civil rights movement is still highlighting is that we still have to become changed and understand humanity and what it means to um, – If he, I don't know if, if people um, – the term I want to use is love one another, but respect one another. Uh, I think uh, – and the reason why I say that is that you know, I truly love my wife, but I think I respect her more. And I think that if you respect people, you can become a person that can love someone that's different from you. And so uh, these sites uh, will continue to transform people uh, inside of uh, the United States and outside of the United States. Uh, I think that the more uh, communities step forward, because communities are the reason why these new sites have, have come to be. You know, there was a huge push by um, – 
Brian Shellam, who wrote a book about uh, Charles Young to help establish that monument to set the stage for the history to be told. Uh, Freedom Riders, that community worked on it for uh, a decade or more, maybe two decades, to try to establish a national monument to commemorate the Freedom Riders, the, the bus burning in Anniston, Alabama. Uh, I know the people in Birmingham for the New Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument worked tirelessly with the city in order to tell the stories of Bull Connor uh, and how he uh, was oppressing people uh, in that community and, the, uh, and to try to right the wrongs that, that occurred there um, with the kids being sprayed with, with uh, fire hoses. So I think when people can internalize those issues and, and put, put them in perspective, they will, it will help change them, and I believe that they will share that message with friends and family and have them anxious to come to these sites to see this history. I, I do as well. I, I firmly believe that. And I think sometimes we receive gifts and blessings and we think it's about us or that we are the result, the reason that those things happen. But, but there are people who went before us decades and decades ago whose prayers and lives that they gave and sacrifices that they made made these things possible. It just, it's like planting a seed. It just took a while for the, the plant to grow, if you will. And so I'm grateful uh, for these kinds of sites uh, that are contributing not only to the broader umbrella of tourism, but to humanity, the, they, all of these places and sites have a reason for being, and and it and and it could it depends upon where they're located and the reason that they're there. Uh, sort of has a major impact on the community that the, in which they're located, particularly in, in communities of color. I'm I'm thrilled of the fact that we now have all of these different sites that are uh, developing and popping up around the, the nation because it is time. And sometimes it takes more than one kind of vehicle to make a change. <coughs> and so, excuse me. And so these sites have a reason Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that um, that helped me appreciate the National Park Service, I, when I finished undergrad, I started working for the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. Uh, I was very passionate about the mission. Uh, I mostly worked in urban communities in, in Nashville and Portland, Oregon, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Charlotte, North Carolina, both as a program director and an executive director. And um, when I was started working on uh, my advanced degrees, I decided that um, uh, I, I wanted a, a little broader platform that would allow me to um, engage, uh, I guess you'd say, a national audience. So the National Park Service, I guess, was a, was a good fit. 
And um, when I started, I started out at Rocky Mountain National Park as a law enforcement ranger. And one of the things that impressed me is that, you know, you had, you know, millions of visitors come through in a, like a, about a five to six month period. And, you know, they came in all shapes, sizes, colors. And the one interesting thing was is that uh, um, I I was the only African-American field ranger uh, there at the park. And uh, it seemed like there was a long line to take a, a picture with the black uh, horseback ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park. And from those encounters became conversations about, you know, why I chose this as a profession. Um, did I feel out of place? And, you know, uh, there's this um, this uh, disconnect now that uh, African-Americans um, don't like the outdoors. Uh, I think uh, if they really look back into history, the out-of-doors out is where black people have always been. Uh, whether it was in Africa, uh, whether it was here uh, enslaved, everything we did was outside. Uh, but Absolutely. If you go, if you, but if you go to most national parks out west and you're looking for someone that looks like me on horseback, uh, you might find three or four or five that are full-time rangers. And then in the summer you might see another, you know, few more that were recruited to be seasonal staff. And and, and um, one thing that I, I, I really hope for with the National Park Service is that diversity um, gets back on the radar screen to ensure that we're we're well well represented uh, in all of our stories. Uh, I think that whether you're a natural park or a cultural park, uh, in order to get visitors to want to come and learn, they also need to see folks that look like them uh, in those parks, whether it's Asian, German, Russian, who, whatever nationality it is. Um, this allows for uh, us to also deal with some language barriers. Fortunately for me, my, my German police friend spoke some English, and, and our correspondence by computer, the computer does a translation from English to German and, and vice versa on his end. So so some people may not be able to get past those type of barriers in order to engage our stories uh, because they may not feel welcome. And I know that uh, every environment that I've been in, whether it's been in the military or as a police officer, um, I'm at home. It doesn't matter who's there with me because I'm there to either do a job, deliver the mission, and work with people. Uh, however, that's sometimes not how the visit, visiting public views our, our our parks. I have one example. <clears throat> As superintendent at George Washington Carver, uh, back I want to say it was around 2005, um, I typically didn't work the weekends unless it was a special event. And there was one other African-American staff person on staff, and he had gone back east to visit family for a couple of weeks, basically taking a vacation. And there was a, a lady that drove down um, uh, north of the park to visit. I want to say she was from Fort Scott, Kansas. Uh, uh, older lady in um she called our regional office, and she was upset that there were no African-American 
staff at the park, and the story was about George Washington Carver, and she thought that that was wrong. <clears throat> and so uh, I get the call from the regional office that there was a complaint, and so that's the job of the superintendent is to try to resolve any complaints that visitors have. And so I called her, and um, and we spoke, and, and she really let me have it. She says, I am so embarrassed that that park down there, and she says, I'm a white lady, and I am so embarrassed that there are no black people that work at that park. And and I said, well, ma'am, uh, she says, let me finish. I said, yes, ma'am. I said, finish. And she just went on and on and on and how, you know, she, she, she was so inspired by Dr. Carver's story, and she had always wanted to see the park, and then she comes down there, and she sees that here we are in the 21st century, and we don't have any black staff at a park for a black, a black guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, she finally let me speak, and I said, well, ma'am, um, you know, I'm, I'm the superintendent, and I am African-American. I said, I am so sorry I wasn't here on the day that you were, that you were here. I said, but we also have another African-American staff, and he just happened to be on vacation. I said, the next time you come, I'm going to give you my personal cell phone number, and please give me a call. And she says, well, i tell you what, you can do me one better. You can take a picture of yourself and send it to me. And, <laughs> she, and, and she wanted verification. <laughs> yes, yes. Because she said she spent most of the day there. So so, so we, resolved, we resolved that. But, you know, just think if that wasn't the case. I mean, um, so visitors are aware of their surroundings. They are aware of Absolutely. having Absolutely. the representation so that it's, it's it's the authenticity of being able to see that there is change in many cases. So so yeah, I have plenty of those type of stories that visitors engage in, and I've had emotional conversations with visitors where where I've been standing there with my eyes welling up because um, they have uh, saw something uh, at the park that had moved them, and it's it's really. Uh, awesome to see that that happen. I I I'm so very happy that you were our guest today because this is this show is about tourism, but it's also about people. We our motto is uh, our our conversation is about the arts, business, and people under the broader umbrella of tourism. And so I, when I think about the content of our show, what, what we really strive to do is have a well-rounded conversations and perhaps those conversations, the kind of conversations that other shows don't have. Yes, the show is about tourism. And one of the things that we encourage is a point that you touched on earlier, and that is about the misnotion that African-Americans are not interested in outdoors. And so we we step outside of the realm of the traditional function of a museum. And so it, it is in our programming that we try to address what we see through the lens that we look through at the public and try to 
fit in or try to to create a niche to address some of the things, quite frankly, some of the ugliness that we see that exists that people don't want to have those honest and candid conversations about. Because racism is alive and well, it's still there, but 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 it's not everybody, but it only takes a little. It only takes a drop to sort of contaminate the water, if you will. And so we we foster, we work a lot with uh, Department of Natural Resources in the state of Illinois, and we function what we call mobile workshops, and they're for outdoor recreation. And so we we try to draw in people, and it's not hard to draw people from our inventory, if you will, those people who are interested in history, heritage, and culture. And so when we take, we sponsor a group outing, and, and it becomes one that is multi-generational. And it also becomes an outing that is multiracial because Pullman is one of those kinds of communities. And so we've never had the opportunity to sort of mix, if you will, uh, that kind of inventory, except for visitors. And so when people see a tour bus that comes up and 70 people get off and they're all not African American, <laughs> it makes them stop and look, and 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 it makes them wonder what they're doing in there, if kind of thing. And so it then begins to prompt people to want to delve in, if you will. It only, I mean, it only takes a little effort to do to do that kind of thing, um, but it's healthy, and I think it's for institutions like that. Both of us represent that will help create the change that we want to see. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that um, um, there, there's more conversation um, with young people about, you know, what what history is. Uh, I often tell uh, folks, you know, what are their thoughts about history? Uh, what's their definition of history? Well, one of the things that I know about history is that it tells the truth. Now, there are people that, you know, they may not have all their facts right, but research can correct that. Um, uh, history should be our litmus test for how we should view the future. Uh, and there are so many sayings about um, the role of history uh, in creating uh, a better present and a better future. However, unless people know their history, Absolutely. Then, uh, they, they they can't they can't grow. Uh, uh, no. You know, and I think that that's uh, some of what happens in African American communities is that uh, we struggle to know our personal history, uh, and that's within our families. You know, where you know where are we from? I mean, there are so many different um, countries uh, inside of the continent of Africa, and you know the tribes were all different. And so we know that we may have, you know, some people might have come from South Africa. Some may have, might have come from other parts of Africa. Uh, and then you mix that in with the slave trade and and the breaking up of families. And then um, it, it's just, it's so complex. But we try to, but I think people try to make it so simplistic, you know, and it's not. It, it's complex. No. 
and you have to peel back layers, and that takes um, time. Like, yes, it takes museums like yours. It takes Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, National Historical Park. It takes Freedom Riders. It takes Birmingham. Uh, it takes Charles Young, and you know, and and you know, I was in the military for a short while, and I did, and I had never heard of Charles Young until probably around 2006. And, and that's, that's really, that's really sad because he was the first African-American Colonel in the military. Mm -hmm. And, but he, he lived a life um, during a time where, you know, he was an attache um, he he fought wars in in other countries. Uh, he was considered a buffalo soldier. Uh, he taught Benjamin O. Davis, uh, uh, a senior at Wilberforce. Uh, so when we think about um, how um, people are mentored, uh, I'm thinking Benjamin O. Davis senior was mentored by Charles Young, and that just blows me away. And so uh, I was embarrassed to some degree that I didn't know that. Um, but when you grow up in a small town in Tennessee that doesn't have a military town and you're the first person from your uh, family to go off to college, um, where do you get that knowledge? Uh, and when I was growing up, there was no Internet. So um, and he was his name wasn't in any textbooks or dictionaries or any any place that, you know, I would have ever yeah, you know, he wasn't in, in any of my library books either. So it's so important that people realize that history, there's still history that's untold. Absolutely. And, and, Absolutely. And, and if we engage it um, and learn it, uh, we may passively hear things, but we'll know the connection when we hear it. And, and so, um, you know, uh, Dr. King... Reverend Shuttlesworth, Reverend Abernathy, uh, doing the things that they did in Birmingham, uh, in Montgomery, in Anniston, in all of those different locations during a time when um, there was so much unrest on a, on a pretty simple topic called interstate travel that the Supreme Court had already ruled on. But you had the South that just was not going to follow the rule of law. And so those issues that the college students were dealing with when they left Washington, D.C., heading to New Orleans and didn't get to make the, the all the way there, I mean, uh, it's more than bravery. Uh, it is... Um, setting the tone for how human beings should be treated. And and that should be a very simple concept. And I'm hoping that when people come to all of our sites, that they realize that there's still some work to do and that they're willing to have conversations when they leave our sites with other folks who have not made it there so that they can understand our history better. I think that it, it, it happens, it does happen, and it will continue to happen, particularly because there are people like us. Not a lot, 
but few people like us who have the burning desire in it's inherent that you want to 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 contribute in a way that will impact and influence people in a way that it brings forth the the good in each of us and sometimes that takes work it takes yeah. work to bring that yeah. about it really does regrettably but sometimes yeah. it takes work yeah absolutely um you know uh growing up in that small town in tennessee um you know i only was around white people and black people so when when i go off to college i had an athletic scholarship basketball small uh Nazarene School in Nashville, Trevecca Nazarene University. And um, uh, my best friend from college, uh, his family's from Argentina. And so uh, he moves up from Orlando. He gets a basketball scholarship. He's on the team with us. And, you know, of course, you know, we talked in practice and that. And then I remember one morning um, he knocks on the door. He said, hey, Reg, man, I need to... Uh, do you have extra jacket I could borrow? He said, man, it's like 30-something 30, 30 degrees outside. I didn't think he'd get, the, get this cold in Tennessee. Because, he, you know, he's born in Argentina and <laughs> right. spent his, his whole, whole most of his life in Orlando, Florida, and he never, he never owned a jacket. And so I gave him a jacket, told him he could have it, and just giving him a jacket has been a lifelong uh, friendship. Mm-hmm. And so... We have uh, spent holidays uh, in each other's homes. Uh, I have eaten authentic uh, Argentinian meals. He's eaten Southern cuisine at my mom's house in that little town in Tennessee. And um, he he calls, I call him, and we pick up our conversations just like we've never, if we haven't seen each other in two years, uh, it's like we pick up the conversation just like it, we, we've never uh, not been around each other. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, those relationships, wanting to know and be around other people of other cultures to learn about them, to be curious. That's the interesting thing to me. When someone that doesn't look like me, I'm curious. I want to I want to know about them in a positive way. I, I want to know, you know, about their family, their traditions, especially if they're from another culture than me. But sometimes you can some environments that I've been in and people see each other and you almost can see the anger because, you know, there, I don't know whether it's fear uh, of the unknown or just um, a dislike, but curiosity should be what people are um, working from when they meet someone from another race, another culture, another country. Uh, But we seem to want to be adversarial first and uh, stay within our own small boxes. I'm not for sure if that's the way that it's meant to be, uh, at least in my personal experience. Uh, I think engaging people, meeting them where they are, and and learning. uh, We should always be learning about things, about other people, about other cultures, so that we're more accepting. Wow. You know what? That that is a perfect place to stop. (laughs) That is a perfect place to stop. I can't believe that we are out of time. This has been an absolutely wonderful uh, conversation. I won't say interview, an absolutely wonderful conversation. 
And I'm I'm just sad that we're out of time. I would like to extend the invitation to you to join us again um, because I, I, I'll be among that short list that you have like your f- college roommate from Argentina when the next time we'll talk, it'll be like we're picking up just where we <laughs> left off. Ladies well, and gentlemen, join me in thanking Dr. Reginald M. Tiller, Deputy Superintendent at the Martin Luther King Jr. National Park in Atlanta, Georgia. Support Hughes-Peterson Publishing by visiting thepullmanmessenger.com and purchase an annual subscription. It's just $12 a year. Or purchase an anthology of respect by Dr. Lynn Hughes, available on Amazon.com. Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger magazine. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week. And last but not least, you, the listening audience, because without you, there would be no show. And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.